Welcome to episode number eight of the Jackson Hole Connection. I am Stephan Abrams, your host. Thank you for downloading this episode. If you have not already subscribed, please do so. Help me reach my goal of being listed in iTunes new and noteworthy by giving this podcast a rating and review. You may submit feedback or request to be on the show through email. Connect at the jacksonholeconnection.com. My guest today on the Jackson Hole Connection is Dave Camp Schulte. Dave is a father, husband, author, speaker, and a 31-year volunteer of hospice. Dave has the experience and skills to open the door to difficult, necessary conversations. Dave has been visiting Jackson Hole for over 35 years. His daughter has been a full-time resident for over a decade, and he loves to visit this valley and experience the outdoors. But before we begin, I have a quick word from one of our sponsors. Jackson Hole Marketplace, the small market in Jackson Hole with a huge reach. Stop in for hot coffee and homemade breakfast in the morning, awesome lunches in the afternoon, and finish the day with a soft serve ice cream and a six pack of beer. Need catering for breakfast or lunch? They can do it and deliver for free. Want to know more? Visit jhmarketplace.com. Dave, thank you so much for taking the time out of your vacation time. You're welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. So give a little introduction as far as how I met Dave. Dave spoke to the Rotary Club on Tuesday and discussed the topics of his books. But before we get into that, Dave, give a little connection of how you are connected to Jackson Hole for over 35 years. Well, my brother-in-law uh, has lived out here for 35 years. We came visiting and our, brought our kids skiing, and our daughter fell in love with the place. And the minute she got out of college, she came out here and has been here ever since. And I tell you, when you see this place, how do you not fall in love with it? I agree. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's got everything for summer and winter. That's right. And so when you're not visiting Jackson Hole, what do you call home? I call home Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay. I'm a retired teacher. I spent my I was born and raised there and spent my whole career there. And what did you teach? I taught a class called Experiences in Living, Life as an Adult. And uh, also I uh, was a director of a peer education program. A peer education program. Yeah. What, what's a peer education program? Peer education, we take high school juniors and seniors, we train them to be facilitators and peer educators over a topic like drug education. And then we put them in with uh, elementary school students and middle school students. And the, the philosophy is a, a young person is going to listen more to a peer rather than there to an old adult like you and me. Interesting. Yeah. Do you, are, you, are you aware of uh, classes in curriculum such as that in today's school still? I, yes, they still uh, are, are out there. They're not as plentiful as they used to be because of the testing emphasis in education these days. Okay. I think we could use a lot more of that type of curriculum, even for adults right. <laughs> in, in the world. Right. Um, so tell me about the books that you wrote. Well, I've written two books. One is called Amazing Circles, which really is my uh, chronicles. This class I taught, Experiences in Living Life as an Adult, basically how you get a group to act, come to trust each other, and to be vulnerable and tell their story because the power of story is huge in, edu in education. Then we oh. use a textbook. We use stories. Okay. Um, can you give an example? Somebody said, I'd say, you know, could anybody here today talk about what it's like being divorced and coming from a divorced family? And hands would start going up and talk about, and they'd come up with all different types of the wheel of, of, of looking at different sides of divorce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. 
I can tell you coming from a divorced family that you kind of hide it at times, especially being a child. It was very tough on me as a child uh, with my parents being divorced, kind of being in the middle of a lot of the conflict that was there. I it would have been nice to have some tools like that to talk and for me to understand the importance of being vulnerable to work through the issues. Yeah, so often people say, oh, kids are young, they'll get over it. And it's a, it's a process. It is a process. Yeah, yeah. It is a process, in, indeed. Well, it's nice that you are offering that and you're bringing that to, to the table for people uh, that they have a tool to use. It, it can be a really tough time in their lives, yeah. um, not only for the mom and dad for the two people going through the divorce but everybody else around them sure it's not an isolated incident and you hit the nail on the head it gives people a chance to talk about it because we all have these emotions inside that we think well we can't talk about this stuff people might think i'm weak why do you think we as society or so many people feel that i cannot talk about it uh because we have this idea that we all have to be rugged individuals, Jackson Hole being a prime example of the, you know, the mythical cowboy, the John mm-hmm. Wayne type character. <laughs> and you got to be that person, especially if you're a guy. Mm-hmm. So John Wayne, did he uh, really mess us up in some ways? I think so. <laughs> I hate to say anything bad about the Duke. But, you know, you never saw John Wayne ask for help. You know, never saw him cry. You never saw him really express any emotions. And so we all think that we have to be that way. And on the female side, we have uh, Jackie Kennedy. When President Kennedy's, uh, you're too young if I remember that, his funeral, when people commented on that, she was stoic. You know, she was very stoic in that. So I think I got to be that way in in expressing my emotions during funerals and things like that. Yes, she might have been stoic in front of the public. Right. But as a society, you were not seeing how she was mourning for the loss of her, her dear husband and for the, what, how she was handling um, raising those children as well at that time. But we didn't see that. No, we didn't see it. And when you don't see it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It exists. Mm-hmm. It's just, um, are we okay with other people seeing it? Right. And just like the other day at the Rotary, somebody asked you, how are you doing, Stefan? And you say, fine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fine for me is an acronym, feelings inside not expressed. But we're programmed to say fine, good, okay. So once again, we never get a chance to talk about this stuff going on. And when somebody tells you that they're fine or okay or good, what is your next question to ask people? I try to read uh, read the person. I try to read their inflection. I try to read their body language. Uh, and somebody says, I'm fine. To me, that what's coming out of your mouth and uh, what you're saying in your voice are two different things. So I always follow up with a question. You know, it doesn't sound like that fine to me. Is would you like to talk about? It? And so in, I'm always constantly inviting people into conversations, right? By body language. Very well said. By body language, your body language. No, I'm watching their body language. I'm trying to read them and get picking up things that they're not. I, I do a workshop. How to hear what's not being said. Oh, okay. And, and so how do you how do you get that? I mean, because we have, we're programmed not to express ourselves. We got this stuff going on inside us, but we give off these clues, and it's not that hard to pick up on the clues. How to hear what's not being said. So when my five year old comes home from school and and I ask him how his day was, and he says I don't remember or good, then I need to look at his body language yeah. a little bit more. Yeah, and also ask him open ended questions that he can't answer with a yes or a no. Give us some examples of those. Tell me about your day today. 
you know, tell me one good thing about your day. Tell me one thing that wasn't so good. You know, give them a chance to, you know, what, what went on in your classroom? Who did you play with? You know, all those kinds of things that gives them a chance to extrapolate. And then when they give you an answer, you always have to follow up with another question. I, I like that, the open-ended questions. And I've also learned what's been helpful for us as well is asking him if I share my day, may I share my day with him, would he be willing to share his day? Well, that's interesting you say that. In this class, the feedback I got from the students, I I have to be vulnerable and willing to open up myself and talk about my stories and my life. And if, they, if I can do it, they feel like, oh, they can do it too. Wait, wait a second here. You have to show that you can be vulnerable I to your to. class? Yeah. <laughs> see, I, you know, I, I don't see myself, when I was teaching, I didn't see myself so much as a teacher as a, or uh, I saw myself as a facilitator. Facilitate the, the interactions that are going on in my classroom. I feel that being in leadership roles, you are always in a facilitating role and you have a responsibility to facilitate conversations and engagement uh, with employees, with customers, whatever your role and experience is or your your industry, that's what our responsibility of a leader is. Right. And I have the additional responsibility of keeping it to be a safe environment where people aren't putting each other down or attacking each other, but they're expressing their opinion. This is my opinion. And Mm -hmm. you may differ with me. Let's talk about that. Safe is important as well. I've, I've been there before. Um, thank you for recognizing and saying that you have a responsibility to ensure that everybody feels safe to have those conversations. I've heard a, an acronym for the word safe before. I don't recall what it is. Have you ever heard? I have not. Okay. I'll have to Google that, or everybody else who's listening will all have to acronym Google the acronym of what safe means. But um, at the liquor store the store that I own, we have an OPSP, a one-page strategic plan. And one of our goals on that one-page strategic plan is that it is okay to have uh, tough conversations and we move on from those conversations. And we also provide a safe working environment, not just with stuff not falling over, you're picking up trash, but emotionally, everybody there has a safe working environment. We do not accept or allow any type of bullying or picking on people. Just even casual banter for one person can be so um, violating for another person. Mm-hmm. And you and I are pretty outgoing people, and not, not everybody's like us. I mean, some for, for some people to tell their story, that's a huge step in their life and to, to trust the safety as you were just talking about. Maybe it's our looks. <laughs> Or the lack of hair that we both have. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but it's well said. Um, that, that is well said that we, you have to be outgoing and, and have those conversations. So you said that you wrote another book as well. I wrote a book called I'm Dying to Talk With You and uh, How to Have End-of-Life Conversations. And so because in our society, death is something that's totally scary for people. We ignore it at all costs and avoid it at all costs, and we don't talk about it because of that. And so... When it comes down to end of life, there's a lot of choices to be made, and you've got to be able to find out what those choices are sooner rather than later, because if it's later, you're just reacting. And you you expressed that you had just been through this with your own family. Correct, uh, Dave. My father passed away 
early July, July 7th, and my mom passed away July 31st, so within the same month, they both passed away. They had been divorced for over 35 years. My father, I had a very distant relationship with him due to decisions that he made in his life. And my mom, she battled Alzheimer's and then dementia, I mean dementia and then Alzheimer's for about 10 years. She was young. She was about she was 71 when she passed away. And it was it was tough, but my brother and sister and I for our, for our mom had those regular conversations and we had put some stuff into place. So when she did pass away, it was not a stressful time for us in addition to what already existed with the emotion of losing our mom. It was a blessing because she was no longer suffering, but there were decisions to be made. Mm -hmm. Um, Funeral decisions, who to call, so many things. What type of treatment do you want? Yes, and fortunately we love each other and care for each other so much that we all knew, my brother, sister, and I for our mom, knew that we had to make decisions that was best for our mom, and fortunately some decisions had already been made. And when I called one of her friends, who was a lifetime friend of hers, Miss Pat, Miss Pat said, Stefan, you know, we're born to die. It's a matter what we do in between. Mm-hmm. And it, it's so true. It is. Cause of every death is birth. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the obituary should read. It, it's, it's right. And it would be nice in society if such a difficult or sticky topic would be easier. So how would you suggest, whether it's death or another difficult discussion that we need to have with someone, what are some tools that we can take along with us to break down some of the barriers to make it easier to have some of these conversations? I think the biggest thing is to ask our loved ones, you know, how is it that you would like to live your last days? You know, whether your last days are way off in the future or you've got a diagnosed illness, and that really helps them. Like I asked my dad, I said, Dad, how would you like to spend your remaining days when the doctor said there's no more, nothing they can do? He says, I don't want to die at home. I don't want to die in the hospital. I mean, I I do want to die at home. I don't want to die in the hospital or nursing home. I said, thank you. That really helps us guide the process now because I know now know what you want I can help facilitate that what happens when people are avoiding that conversation they say I don't want to talk about it you know I, I always try to say find out where that's coming from you know wh- where is this uh, reluctance and so uh, one of my I find very helpful lines is tell me more about that what, what's what's going on here Tuesdays with Maury, Maury Schwartz, he always used to have a, a, a saying, he'd, he'd, when something's going on that's puzzling him, he'd say, what's going on here? What's, and it, where's this coming from? I mean, it could be from a, a reaction to a death that they saw as a child, and they, and they saw a lot of pain, mm. and they don't want to even talk about that. They may be worried about whether they're going to heaven or hell. Everybody is different, and until you ask that question and get all, tell me more about that, and, and that, that's, 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 that's the key. It's, it sounds like a big key and an important key for, for yeah. sure. And I find, as reluctant as people are to talk about it, once you open the door, the floodgates open and they want to talk about it. It's just that initial fear of that and that reluctance because this is stuff that we all think about because we know on some level we're going to die. It's very easy talking to you, and you make it sound so easy. 
and I, I I will certainly take away some stuff, and I plan on reading your book very soon. Why I'm dying to talk with you. I'm dying. To, well, I'm dying to talk with. I'm you. dying to, to talk, talk with you. I, I love the title. And, and another great book out there is Being Mortal by Doctor Atu Gawande, mm-hmm. and uh, he, uh, he he talks about. He says when he talks with his patients, he says, "I'm sorry we're having having to have this conversation, but we we need to have it." And then he talks about what are your fears about death? What is your understanding of your diagnosis? A lot of people, they, they, you know, when they hear uh, uh, one word, bad word in a, a doctor's office, they just blank out and they, don't, they walk away and say, I don't even know what, what he said or she said. What are you willing to trade off? You know, if somebody says, I can, a doctor says, I can get you in this uh, treatment pro- program and you're going to be on chemo and radiation for the next six months, the next question should be, what's that going to be like for me? Quantity versus quality of mm-hmm. life. And um, most of my patients that choose quality of life, they said, you know, I, my mom lived to be 102. Oh, and, uh, congratulations. And she was very adamant. You know, when my time comes, I don't want anything extra done to me. And, mm-hmm. and that helped us as a family. When her time did come, we knew what she wanted. We go make it happen. That's a long life. It is a long life. Y- you have a few years ahead of you if you uh, follow the path of your mom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, this is this is so helpful because, um, like I said earlier, it is such a tough conversation, and you've experienced this over thirty-five years of volunteering with hospice. What sparked your interest to get involved with hospice? My best friend, I was diagnosed with lung cancer and died of lung cancer at age thirty-two, and just like everybody at that time, it was back in the nineteen eighties. You know, you end up pulling all all-nighters in the hospital. His wife was was completely shot after two two nights of doing that. And the social worker, I happened to be there uh, that day with his family. She said, have you ever heard of hospice? And she said, no, we just said, no, we haven't. What is it? And she explained it, how hospice can help you to die. It's comfort rather than cure. You can die in your own home if you so choose. And we will help facilitate that process for you. And we said, why would you not do that? I mean, uh, he was uh, at the end of his life. And so he, unfortunately, like so many people, only was in hospice for two days. And, but I said afterwards, I said, you know, death's going to come knocking at my door again sometime. I, I know I did everything for him I could. I want to be better prepared next time for the next time. And I have been, I've been very involved with family and friends uh, outside of my hospice role. That's, that's special. And all the lives that you have touched are so fortunate that you have been involved in their lives and helped those families with the tail end of, of their loved ones' lives. You, yeah. You're a special person, and well, well, thank and, you. and thank you for what you have done for your community and what you've provided to the rest of the world through your books and your speeches, and the willingness that you bring to the table, um, to the conversation table. Um, that's really special. Thank you. You're welcome. But you know, I have to say, it's, I mean, it's the wonderful feeling knowing that you've done everything for that person that you can. You know, you've left it all on the field, so to speak. And you help them have the type of ending that they wanted to have. Yes, the the hospice group that we worked with for my mom they were they were spectacular. They're a wonderful group of people, and she was in hospice for several years. I would say probably about five years she was involved with hospice. So it's not just a very short time period. It just depends on each. I think each person's individual situation of what their needs well, and well according to the uh, guidelines set down by the government you have to have a six-month diagnosis to live uh, to be enrolled in hospice and so and they don't kick you out after six months if you're not 
they reevaluate you and decide what to do. But so many people, my initial question with people is, I used to go in and say, here's what hospice does. And now my question is, what is your understanding of hospice? It's amazing the, the different types of responses. Hospice is only for the last week of life. Why is that? Why do you have to be in pain? Hospice is giving up. You know, I mean, these are things that people carry around that they pick up from different places. So my job, then, I can know where they're coming from. I can help educate them and tell them what, what hospice is. Do you know the history of how hospice originated? It started in England. I can't tell you the, uh, the exact date of it, but it came, it came to Grand Rapids area is, uh, like when my friend died in 1985, 86. So, okay. Yeah. And... Is there a need for hospice volunteers? Oh, there's always a need. Okay. There's always a need. How can people find their local hospice organization? What's the easiest way? I think the easiest way in this day and age is Google. Google <laughs> <laughs> you're, talk, you're talking to a guy who uh, carries a flip phone, but Google it up. Just Google it and you can find it. Yeah. But um, if you want to do a little something for your community and give back to people, um, does hospice give some training? Oh, definitely training. I went through, a, at the time, a uh, very intense training, which was extremely beneficial in my uh, personal life. I mean, uh, because a lot of the hospice work is, uh, you get, rather than just rushing in, rushing out, taking the blood pressure, you're there to treat the whole family. Uh, you're part of a team, and you're there to listen. And uh, that's, that's, that's key to get people to talk, because people, once again, carry a lot of stuff around. We all do. You know, and I've had people say, I haven't talked to my brother in 30 years and, uh, you know, I don't want to talk to him now. Help me understand where that's coming from. And there's always a story. We all have a story and hopefully we can create a comfortable environment, like you said, a safe environment for people to share their stories. Right. And it just takes one little question to get a story. Just like when you and I were talking before I got here today. Uh, you started with your the yardstick on your your counter and how mm -hmm. that just developed. I hope you could just see the pride in your family and talking mm -hmm. about your, your family's business and everything, and all the, the stuff that we got to talk another hour about that. So what Dave is referring to is on my bookshelf is a yardstick from my grandfather's hardware store, which was called Abrams Mercantile Store, and his fa his father and uncle started it in Mississippi, Brookhaven, Mississippi, in the mid 1800s, and then my grandfather was born in 1904 and took it over from his from his family and ran it and I remember going into that store and learning so much and I would say I learned how to talk to people from that store mm -hmm. because people would come in and talk about anything and everything in that store it was remarkable and the men who worked there AG Sullivan and Mr. Brown and Will Robinson those gentlemen just had such kind, warm hearts, and they experienced a lot. Yeah. They experienced. And you were willing to listen and to ask the questions. You know, Stephen Covey in his book, The Seven Habits, uh, uh, seek first to understand. Correct. And how critical that is, and that, how that doesn't happen. We, in this day and age, we, of all the talk shows, we want to get our point across and deride the other person. Yeah, some of those talk shows, they kind of bring to the table a lot of assumption about people and situations, mm -hmm. which, as you said, all we have to do is ask the right question. You ask one question, it's not the right one, ask another one. And, and be gentle and kind when asking the questions. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. So what are you going to go do today here in Jackson Hole? We're going to take a car trip up to the tea time. My wife uh, hurt her foot uh, hiking the other day, so we're kind of limited. She's limited, so we're going to take a, that beautiful ride through Grand Teton Park and uh, go up to Jenny Lake and 
take the boat right across and hang out. I'll that, be out there. That's awesome because my wife and I, we celebrated our seventh anniversary on Monday, and we had our anniversary dinner last night up at Jenny Lake Lodge. Wow. So we were up there last night, and it was just gorgeous. So for all you folks, if you have not experienced the boat ride across Jenny Lake, I highly, highly re- recommend it. Um, Dave, when I was working and learning how to pronounce your name, um, it it's spelled K-A-M-P-F-S-C-H-U-L-T-E, and that's Camp Schulte. But you said that you had to make a – a song for your kids of how to spell their name. When my kids were little, they couldn't spell their name. So uh, being a teacher, you have to be creative. So I came up with a Camp Schulte song. And I'm sure it's a sing-along, so you're going to have to repeat that for me. Okay, deal. K-A-M-P-F. K-A-M-P-F. S-C-H-U-L. S-C-H-U-L. T-E-E-E. T-E-E-E. There's only one E, but I had to work that in there. It was so funny because I was volunteering in my daughter's classroom, and uh, you could, she was writing her name, and she was stomping her foot to the beat of the song. She was writing her name, and then a few years, um, fast forward uh, thirty years, my son's getting married, and she gets up to give the toast at the wedding, and she says to my daughter-in-law, Jen, you're taking on a really tough name here. She says, I got a song to teach. <laughs> so it's it's in our family. It's like like the song. I love it. I love it. That must you guys must have such a great time when you're all together. We do. It's wonderful about here. You probably don't remember the names, uh, Doctor Sidney Freeman, do you? I do not know the Doctor Sidney Freeman. He was a Freeman. psychiatrist. He used to come visit the Mash unit on the TV show of the Mash. Okay. And, and oh would, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Just, this was kind of respite for him because he would come to there and hang out with the guys. Uh-huh. And it, for me, this is Jackson Hole's like that for me. You know, it, 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 it's, it's just a, I got a lot of stuff going on back in Michigan to become here. I feel like I'm Sydney Freeman. I get to, you know, go speak like things with the Rotary and speak with St. John's, and it's just it's just it's wonderful because I, there's no pressure and it's, people are just so caring here and not judgmental. I love that show. I used to watch that show with my mom. That I think that was her favorite movie. <laughs> was mash and when dr sydney freeman would come in and he'd have a martini with the guys that they made out of their yeah. homemade still in the tent that was great and yeah. it's that's awesome that you connect jackson hole to what he was going through and how he could just let go and jackson hole is that special to it you is. that it's a place you can just let everything else be behind you and enjoy the time that you're here but you do take the time to come and talk to the hosp- people at the hospital, and you yes. talk to different service organizations such as Rotary, yeah. and, and that's special. It, it's very kind of you to take the time to sh- uh, spread the word of what you do and, and the knowledge that you have. Thank you. Well, somebody once, I saw a quote, my school education taught me how to think, but it didn't teach me how to feel. Hmm. And I think that's a, a deficit that we all deal with. You know, nobody ever taught me how to grieve, but think of all the losses I've had in my life. And not just when you think of loss, you think of death, but you think of the loss of, uh, you know, loss of your first girlfriend, you know, the, the loss of uh, maybe moving from Mississippi to Jackson Hall. I mean, we have all these things, the eventual loss of my parents. And then you and I, my, my case is specifically the loss of my hair. I mean, we have all <laughs> and there's this great book out there called Judith of Yours wrote it, uh, The Necessary Losses. She said these are losses that we all go through. And death is actually the easiest because we have built-in rituals in our society. We have a memorial service. We have a funeral home. We have a a funeral. We have a cemetery. We have rituals to take care of this. But these other losses, we tend to just bury because we don't know how to grieve them. And they're called unresolved grief. Interesting. And it carries us around. And then uh, it affects our relationships. It affects our 
job performance because we have the stuff that um, we're just burying it. It's like a beach ball. You try to bury it in the water, it ain't going to work for you. It's going to pop up sooner or later. Could you tell us the name of the author and the name of that book again? Judith B. Orst, and for some of you may remember, she wrote the terrible, horrible, no good, bad day that your kids may have read or you may have read as a kid, but she also wrote another book called Necessary Losses. Okay. Um, I never put loss and just life in perspective to the point where you said that death is probably the easiest one. and To, gr- to grieve. To grieve, yeah. yes. Because um, we have rituals. There's going to be some reflection for me after ha- well, having this conversation. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you. And think of uh, the, the obvious cases, somebody who uh, has a miscarriage. There is no, that's a death, but there's no mechanism in our society to deal with that. And so many people have just buried that. And there's, as opposed to somebody who died maybe four days after birth, we have a whole mechanism in place to deal with that. Something that I struggle with at times is when I know that somebody is ill, they have cancer, or somebody close to them has cancer, or somebody has passed away, and I want to write a card of understanding and my condolences, I struggle with how to get into the conversation, what exactly I should write on the card, and I get into a roadblock. Well, I think of my dad in situations like this, when he would, he'd read the obituaries, and he'd say, Dorothy, we gotta go over to the funeral home tomorrow night, so-and-so died, we gotta say goodbye. And he'd go in, it wasn't, I'm sorry for your loss, and walked out the door. He'd stay there for an hour and tell stories about that person and the impact that that person had on his life. And I really took that to heart. So anytime anybody I know dies, I find funeral home conversations, just the fact that you're there means a huge amount. You're not going to have any, a lot of meaningful conversation because there's 100 other people waiting for you uh, in line to get to your spot. But if you write a card and say, this is the impact that this person had on me to the family, or if the person's still alive, I've done that too, where I said, this is what you've done for me. And you, you, don't, you probably don't even know this. I had a student once say to me, Mr. Campshaw, you're my favorite teacher. I said, why is that? He said, you smiled all the time. And I just took me back, you know, because you kept saying, what did I do? What did I say? It was just my fact, my smile. And so we impact ways, people in ways that we have no idea. It sounds like you had a very wise and kind father. I did. And it was interesting because when he died, people came to his wake and said, we sure enjoyed having your father come to our wakes. He made us feel good about our parents and our uncles and aunts and grandparents. Oh, that's special. Yeah, it was. And and thank you for the for the tools that I can use to, to help other people in their time of grief and their time of, of suffering when they're going through some, some problems. Right. And I'll tell you one other thing. Writing a letter, it's kind of a lost art today. But that person has that letter as opposed to a conversation that they may have had with you. That's uh, They can't refer back to that. I mean, they go in their mind. But to be able to bring that piece of paper out and see what you wrote, that is, I've had the personal experience of having people send me letters, and it makes a big difference. Well said. And once when you said writing a letter that people will always have that letter, I remember my grandfather showing me a letter that he received when he gave blood one time and they knew who the blood went to and she wrote him a thank you note because the blood that he donated helped save her life and he kept that. How can we bring back the lost art as a new art of writing letters? Yeah. A new mission. A new mission. Yes. That's that's right. You know, as we're talking here today, I kind of go back in time in my head my sister suffered from mental illness and, uh, and had multiple suicide attempts, eventually did commit suicide. 
And I, we went through a crisis hotline training kind of as a result of that. How can I make sense of this? And the training was wonderful for two reasons. Number one, it taught me how to listen for feelings, not facts. But part of the training was we'd have to work in triads. And we'd have to, people would practice. We have a listener, a talker, and an a, a observer. And as if I was a talker, I had to come up with a problem of my, of my own and talk about my feelings, which I was never programmed very well to do. Never taught that. I wasn't really... Look at me, I'm a very happy guy, but early in my life, I just had a nice little box that I lived in. And today, I'm very comfortable talking about my feelings. It was a, what do I want to say? It was unintended consequence of that training. I thought I was going in there to learn how to listen to people, but I also learned how to express my own feelings, too. Hmm. And it was the triad, you said? The triad, yeah. There was a, we, we have a, group, uh, a listener, a talker, and an observer. And the observer would give the listener feedback on how, they, how good they were listening. Because so, so often we want to ask factual questions because that's our background, our education. Rather than saying, it sounds like you're a little frustrated. It sounds like you're a little happy today. So excited about that. And uh, we don't normally do that. They say, well, you know, somebody said, you know, uh, my dad died 10 years ago. Well, tell me uh, what day of the month was it that he died? You know, and what kind of day was it? You know, because we don't know how to talk. That must have been really hard for you, you know? Or that, and I could say, yeah, it was. Or I could say, in my case, you know, I was able to help my dad die at home, so it really wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be afterwards because I was able to help him get to that spot where he wanted to be. I mean, I miss him, and I'm never going to forget him. But So people look at you like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. I thought, I thought all death should be hard for people. That's, that's very helpful. Thank you. Uh, speaking of fathers, there's a picture sitting right behind us here with my dad sitting on a horse. He always had the dream that he was going to be a cowboy, or he thought in his previous life that he was a cowboy. So I think that was one of the few times he was ever on a horse (laughs) 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 to kind of relive uh, what he thought was in his genes of of being a cowboy. And, but he, he loved uh, dreaming and talking, which is, is good to do. It's just very good to do. Well, David, how can people find your books? My book is, but both my books are for sale on Amazon, and uh, and I actually uh, uh, ship them directly myself. So uh, I always love to hear feedback from people after they read the book. I find my books get passed around a lot. You know, this it's, they're both uh, around 100 pages long. They're not that big, but people, it's a resource, and people say, "Gosh, you know, my my I was really helpful for my family. Now I'm going to give it to my wife's family because somebody's in trouble over there at the end of life." And, uh, and being, this, being prepared is, is a huge part of this because we don't all die of illnesses. Some people have events, have car accidents. People say, I don't need to worry about this stuff. I'm only 30 years old. You and I could both walk out the door today and be in a situation where we end up in a hospital and people don't know what we want. You know? that's, that's so true. Yeah. Uh, so true. I hope it doesn't happen, but yep. it's, it's so true. Yep. And how can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out to you? My email is dave at amazingcircles.net. Okay. And I would love to hear from people. Thank you for coming today, Dave. This has been absolutely special to be able to shake your hand and talk with you, learn more about how you got involved in hospice and how important it is to you and how you've helped so many people through their experiences of death, but not just death, but just hard discussions about life. So thank you. Well, thanks for the opportunity to be here, and I hope our paths cross again soon. I look forward to it. Thank you, Dave. Have a great day. Is it okay to pair beer with Beef Wellington? 
Does Merlot go with Red Bull? Not sure how to make the perfect bourbon and Coke? Well, the team at the liquor store of Jackson Hole can answer all of these questions plus more. Stop in at 115 Buffalo Way, Jackson, Wyoming, or visit us at tlsofjh.com to experience service that will knock your socks off. The liquor store has been serving the Jackson Hole Valley for over 35 years. Thank you everyone for tuning in today to the Jackson Hole Connection. I hope you have enjoyed listening and can take away a little nugget about life. I'm always looking for fun guests who have a connection to Jackson Hole. Know of someone who would be great to be on the show? Please send me an email to connect at the jacksonholeconnection.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review the Jackson Hole Connection on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Y'all come back again, you hear?